0: Welcome to Rewear the Fashion Puppet. A podcast aimed at reintroducing new language around the way we speak about clothes. I'm your host, Singer, and I use she/her pronouns. In each episode, we explore what it means to be a part of the fashion system and how we can be more intentional in the ways we forge a personal relationship with our clothes. In today's episode, we're discussing the elephant in the room. Shortly after the COVID-19 pandemic broke out globally, the reinvention of the fashion system was widely discussed and reported. Just as we were hopeful that this was finally the turning point for fashion, almost like a wake-up call, ultra-fast fashion companies like Boohoo reported an increase in revenue as high as 41% during the lockdown. This was the same period as their release of the now-apologized-for-five-pounds masks that came with insensitive messages such as, quote-unquote, eat, sleep, isolate, repeat, and, quote-unquote, if you can read this, you're too close. Call-ins for the fashion industry to be more responsible, human-focused, equitable, and to creatively problem-solve have been increasingly audible and visible but it seems like fast and ultra-fast fashion companies knowingly dissociate themselves from this call-in and the call-outs, and continue to thrive financially with ambiguous and bare minimum climate and reparation commitments. Very recently, she and a real-time fashion company came into the spotlight for its unimaginable speed of production and notoriously viral TikTok hauls. In fact. Coin to be real time because they are able to cut short the design and production process to as short as three days. According to an article by Vox, Sheen raked in close to $10 billion in 2020, which was reportedly its eighth consecutive year of revenue growth of over 100%. According to the web analytics platform SimilarWeb, the retailer is also one of the most talked about brands on TikTok and YouTube and the most visited fashion and apparel site in the world. I will be linking these articles in the show notes and the description box, so please check it out and read it if you're interested. This episode is brought to you by Podcast Meat. Podcast Meat produces podcasts for iconic brands and market leaders. They do the heavy lifting for you so you don't have to. All you gotta do is press record. I know. Having a branded podcast is one of the best ways to establish thought leadership and brand communications. It's another platform where you can communicate your brand values, have authentic relationships with your audience and show your brand's personality while delivering value through quality content. The struggle is that's going to be additional work for your marketing team. And really, who has the time to do all the legwork, research and production when you don't have an internal team who's an expert at that? You don't want your team to have to spread themselves thinly, right? You don't want to overwhelm them by adding more tasks on their plate, tasks where they don't have experience in, where they aren't an expert of. You know how the best companies handle this? They delegate the work to specialized agencies who are experts at producing high-quality branded podcasts. That way, you know for sure that your podcast is of consistent quality with everything that you do with your company's marketing efforts. That's exactly what we did with our own podcast. Reware is an original production by PodcastMain, and they do all the heavy lifting for us. Post-production, art direction, sound design, audio engineering and content repurposing. Don't overwhelm your marketing team by adding more onto their plate. Delegate your company's podcast production to the team that does it best so your team can focus on doing what they do best. Reach out to PodcastMate so they can help you get the ball rolling. They will make your podcast production an easy breezy journey. They do the heavy lifting for you so you don't have to. All you gotta do is press record. Email them at Nash at thepodcastmate.co That's N-A-S-H at thepodcastmate.co or check out thepodcastmate.co Alright, editing me here and I wanted to re-record this portion because I feel like I hadn't put my point across as coherently as I would have liked the first time. So here's take two. I went on to do some research and digging on the history and evolution of Shein, and thought it would be interesting to share what I found. So they first launched in 2018 as a site that sold wedding dresses and women's apparels and were known as Side. In 2014, it acquired its own supply chain system and actually successfully transformed itself into a fully integrated clothing retailer. In the same year, they purchased another Chinese e-commerce retailer known as Romwe, which I am actually quite familiar with because they were really popular on um YouTube during those days. There were so many Romwe YouTube hauls. I'm pretty sure you can still um search for them on YouTube right now. And then in 2015, um, they shortened their name to Shein to be more memorable and therefore marketable and searchable on the internet. And as we now know, Shein's financially successful business model isn't driven by having that much of a physical presence. Instead, it's a solely e-commerce operation, selling directly to consumers by building a huge online presence. I juxtaposed the evolution and brand positioning of Shein with that of Forever 21, Like Shein, Forever 21 were really popular among students and younger consumers because of their huge selection of trend-led and cheap fashion items. The difference between the two is that while Shein focuses on expanding their online presence and using data as a vehicle to drive direct sales, Forever 21 invested heavily in opening physical stores all around the world and pretty much relied on their physical brand presence to remain relevant and competitive, which has unfortunately proven to be an antiquated form of business expansion as they declared bankruptcy in 2019. But what's non-negotiable is that they are both fast fashion brands, both Shein and Forever 21, and have extremely opaque supply chains and ambiguous and baseless sustainability commitments. It is crucial to know that the backend of Shein is the reason why they've managed to grow to the giant that they are now. On top of using Google's Trend Finder, they scour the internet and refer to their own in-app and consumer-informed website data. So this allows them real-time data to accurately predict the popularity of certain products and trends. According to an article by Green is the New Black, Shein automatically forecasts demand and adjusts inventory in real-time. So unlike other fast fashion brands that might not be as data-rich and informed, Shein can first start by producing a batch of clothing in small quantities. So according to an article by Vox, when a product is live, Shein creates more first-party data, which it then uses to automatically adjust production on the fly. This means that they are consistently at the top of the game when it comes to creating micro-trends and offering competitive prices and ensuring that people buy what they produce so if a specific talk goes viral overnight on tiktok for example sheen will be able to instantaneously ramp up production on the garment and place additional orders depending on real-time demand so this all sounds like you know a perhaps a solution um as to only producing what people want and demand for but what happens is that microtrends are created and these are actually projecting false demands. So we might actually not need any of what Shein is producing, but because of the way they market themselves, because of the way they reach out to influencers on TikTok and Instagram, and the way they infiltrate their content into our everyday lives, um, this is a problem. And this is why real-time fashion, just like fast fashion, in fact, is an even larger problem. This speedy turnover in by Data means that they actually produce tens of thousands of new units every day, just like every other fast fashion brand. So my question really is, why has the fashion industry, an industry that in recent years shouted so loudly about its commitment to sustainability, allowed for companies like Shein to thrive? yes, we should be refining and redesigning our production lines to produce more accurate quantities and they should be more data and tech driven. But what does this say about the unimaginable scale and quantities that we still produce at? Or the production timeline of fashion that has just become shorter than ever before? I think the question that we should be asking all the time is also, what does this say about fashion and the system, (coughs) of capitalism, that, only thrives under the circumstance of driving trends and this relentless pursuit for novelty. What does this really mean for fashion? We've come to gradually understand that all variations of the fast fashion business model is harmful and damaging. So Sheen's virality really boggled my mind. And so I want to find out how and why Shein has managed to propel their popularity exponentially, particularly so in a time like now. I wanted a deeper understanding of what goes on behind the scenes of a fast fashion brand. So I invited Naja On, founder of Fashion Fidelity, to have a conversation with me on the complexities of the industry's supply chain. Naja, it's really my pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Can you please tell me a bit more about yourself and what you do?
1: Hi, Zing! Thank you so much for having us on your podcast. Uh, my name is Najra On. I am actually an environmental engineer by training. I actually study environmental engineering and I've been doing that for the last 17 years. I've always been into fashion and style. And so recently I decided to pivot a little bit. I started my own sustainability consultancy. I've seen a lot of, I guess, problems in the fashion supply chain. And I thought, why don't I do something about it? I think as an environmental engineer, I have something to offer behind the scenes sort of thing. I understand manufacturing, I understand best practice, I understand cleaner production, and also I guess supply chain challenges. And also the thing about working in sustainability for a long time is that you kind of understand what people expect of you, what people see, and from the inside, what kind of language do you use to actually make sure that you're fully transparent but also honest to your customers? fashion doesn't necessarily sort of employ people outside of fashion. And so in the last couple Mm. of years, I was actually based in Malaysia. I'm Mm. actually now in Melbourne, Australia, just because you know, the world's been turned upside down a little bit. But part of that work is that I help sort of uh, startups and also established brands kind of Maybe have a look at how their business is run and I use sustainable right. principles at work to improve their business practices um, overall. So that's right. what I do now.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. And also I'm like a huge fan of your Instagram account. Like everything is like, your messages are really concise and they're very well put together. Do you want to speak a bit about that and you know how how you put everything together?
1: Yeah, sure. So Fashion Fidelity is like my little alter ego. (laughs) I'm like an environmental engineer by day. And then the rest of the time, I kind of talk about fashion on this platform. Fashion Fidelity, when I started in 2008, I guess that account, I was already Mm -hmm. blogging. Then I have my own blog. I realized a lot of the information on, I guess, sustainability in fashion really just scrapes the surface of what really happens behind the scenes. So I guess I wanted our mantra to be, I am talking to the more informed consumer. And obviously, on this journey, I've had a lot of people on different journeys as well on their own sustainability journey. Obviously, I operate a B2B business, but then the Mm. Fashion Fidelity platform is a more consumer-oriented sort of platform. I've had to, I guess, rejig some of the um, information that I put out on there. But it's a good balance between what I would say having thought-provoking and really conscientious sort of conversations and balanced conversation about fashion. When I first started, that wasn't happening. I think there's more of those accounts now. So I think there's a lot more people offering in that space. But I would say, like, that was my idea. One of the things that I came out with in my blog was, you know, hashtag conscientious fashionista. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I like to draw upon is the word conscientious. Conscientious actually means being thorough. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at some of the sort of activism that was happening many years ago now, everyone would, you know, ask simple questions like, which textiles better than the other Mm. or which brands should I buy against the other. And I think that sort of, that sort of conversation was a little bit too shallow. Mm. And I think we just need to add a bit more um, input into that. So fashion fidelity really is a platform to kind of expose the whole of the fashion supply chain. I like to break it down as sort of four categories. So you have textiles production, you have textiles manufacturing, you know, production means like growing the cotton or, you know, shearing the wool yeah. off the lamb or growing silk, you know, and then you have to yarn it. You have the dyeing process and then you have the manufacturing, which normally people would skip that bit. And then they talk about people in factories, right? Which we call in the industry cut, make and trim. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Or ready, ready-made garment manufacturing, RM. Yeah. And so... That's the bit that people always see back in the day. Anyway, I think there's more conversations around that now in terms of supply chain. But the third part of the fashion supply chain, I like to say the consumer part, as in the use part. I think people forget that um, we are actually part of the supply chain as well. And after that, we have the post-consumer part, which is like, okay, I'm done with with my clothes. What do I do with it now? Mm. And so... Fashion Fidelity is really a platform to bring together all of those supply chain conversations into the spotlight for mm-hmm. everyone to kind of deconstruct and dissect and have a really sort of balanced conversation around all of the issues.
0: Ask you about you know the 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 manufacturer part of like the fashion supply chain because, like you said, it's you know cut, make, trim, it's dyeing, it's um, processing, and it's also working with raw materials, that is also included in the production side of things, right? So can you just walk us through maybe a more sort of like detailed explanation for for listeners or for viewers who might not actually know what really goes on behind the scenes? Can you please break it down to us in like simple, understandable language? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'll try I'll try it's a big one to come yes it's a big one it's a big one it's a big one yeah it's funny you know like I my first blog post was we are dumb consumers because we don't know how our clothes are made that was my first blog post ever and I'm not saying everyone's dumb (laughs) but you know to have a bit of an awareness about what happens in your everyday life and the things that that you consume is really the first step in sort of being conscientious I think I understand I come from a business background in terms of, you know, businesses have a role to play in terms of their own um, way of doing things, but we can get to that in a minute. Mm. But going back to, I think, fashion in the start of it, I think a lot of people, you know, nowadays, you, you know, you open up a fridge at the supermarket and you get milk and some people don't even know where milk comes from. Or you open the tap in your house and you can drink water from the tap and people don't really understand the process that goes, you know, before it comes there, you can consume it. So I think the same goes into fashion. And can Mm -hmm. I make a distinction? Fashion doesn't necessarily mean fashion. When Mm -hmm. people like me or when you interview people on podcasts or you look at them on TV, when they say Mm -hmm. fashion... And the statistics that you get in some of the social media, the news outlets and stuff, when they say fashion, they mean TCF, which is textiles, clothing and footwear. So fashion really is, is a language that we use now is a catch to kind of fit in all the things that we manufacture that people mm-hmm. wear. So that distinction is very important. I always try to make that distinction when I do mm-hmm. presentations. and It's easy for a lot of people to think fashion's nothing really to do with us or with me. I'm not fashionable. Mm. You know, I'm not high fashion or I don't Mm. buy brand things. So I'd like to maybe just start the conversation by making that sort of distinction when we talk about fashion. We're really talking about clothes, accessories, footwear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that also includes things like textiles, which is, you know, your bed throws and your, you know, um, Manchester linen, that type of stuff. So going back to the start of making clothes, I think it is important for people to understand what you wear now. You have to finish it. You know, you wouldn't be walking around with something nice on your body without it already being through a round of chemicals, a round of treatment, a round of dyeing, a round of bleaching, and all these sorts of things. And textiles doesn't just happen they actually come from what you call um, yarn or like mm. maybe in your consumer language, you call it thread, right? Mm. So like yarn mm. is then something that is spun from a sort of material and that material can come from a plant, you know, or an animal or um, a fiber sort of thing. So I think it's important for people to realize that when we talk about making clothes, there's a whole different industry out there that yeah. actually just makes textiles to start right. with. Right. Yes. After you get sort of like rolls and rolls of textiles in different colors, you know, different sort of embroidery, different sort of beading and artwork uh, attached to it, and also different sort of you know sort of knots and and sizes. That's when you um kind of then cut, make, and bake, trim, trim, right? Yeah. Fashion, you know, takes about the. It's a bit um. It's a bit funny the numbers in fashion at the moment. Um, Some people are saying it's about 10% in terms of the whole industry of global emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. However, it's also interesting that we can't just use that language to describe fashion because um, fashion is an industry that consumes consumables. So we consume chemicals, Mm -hmm. we consume water, we consume energy. And Mm -hmm. so if you want to kind of talk about its impact on the planet, we have to be wary of like, Not just to think about it it, based on greenhouse gas emissions, but also water consumption, chemical consumption, but also labor uh, practices. So that's probably the four main elements in terms of its resources. There's also um, what you call things like, you know, making the finished products requires Mm. raw materials. And so we grow cotton, and cotton is a very thirsty yarn. It's not necessarily the most environmentally friendly yarn. You can find the information on the internet, I'm sure. But we also um, make, you know, more than 65% of our, you know, clothing now is made out of things that are made out of oil. <laughs> so like plastics is the origin, which is synthetic. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, that's because technological advances have made us emulate a lot of the natural properties of textiles Mm. for example we can emulate uh, antibacterial properties from wool or we can emulate the silkiness of silk Mm. in Mm. rayon for example Mm. and so this is what we call fashion technology or textile technology and it's this is all happening all behind the scenes anyway Mm. as normal consumers we don't necessarily see we just know this feels nice So we don't necessarily, you know, give that thought. And it's not no one's fault. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. It's just that I think people forget that something that you wear today that looks luxurious and it feels nice on your body has probably touched more than 100 hands before you. And I think up to about 100 steps. And that's the fashion supply chain. Yeah. From growing mm-hmm. the crop, for example, or, you know, having a byproduct of leather from an animal or something mm-hmm. down to you, the box coming into your bedroom or your living room in your bag from the shop. I think there's something about 100 steps that's involved. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, thank you so much for pointing it out and for just like, you know, explaining and breaking it all down. And I think I just wanted to go back to like you know the part where you mentioned that they are sort of like a finished product has all these tiny steps prior to finishing an actual clothing product, like a like a like a piece of an item of clothing. And there's a lot of talk around like say, transparency and accountability when it comes to making sure that you know all the tiers in the supply chain are accounted for. Can you just tell us a bit more about like, why is it that subcontracting happens and what is subcontracting in layman terms and how that looks like in, in this whole disconnected maze that consumers are unable to figure out and are just like, you know, entirely cut out of because these are information that are not included in marketing language, because it obviously doesn't benefit um, fashion companies and corporations. So can you kind of like... Sure. You know,
1: yeah, <laughs> yes. I might, I might have to do a presentation or something because this is something <laughs> that I cover for my clients. But um, oh, wow. that is really good questioning. To go back into tiers and supplier transparency, what happens in fashion is that a lot of people um, have decided now businesses to maybe, let's say, publish their uh, suppliers, um, what I would call them as tier one and two suppliers. Mm. But what people don't see is that when it comes to the garment factories or what you might call sweatshops or whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's only a little bit of the picture. What happens mm. before it came there, um, it must have gone through a much more dirtier process, such as textiles manufacturing and production usually they involve heavy chemicals i don't know if you've been to any of you know factories yarn factories but they're Mm. full of dust um you know the way that we actually harvest cotton hasn't really changed in a hundred or so years Mm. or more Mm. um when you think about cotton you know we grow them we still use pesticides or herbicide we use water um they might have a better yield now in terms of technology and genetically mm. modified crops. But, you know, if we weren't using sort of backbreaking labor like we did, you know, you know, it's obviously there's colonization in terms of the trade slaves, you know, African slaves. Yeah. So even if we're not using people anymore, and by the way, we still are in some places mm. in the world, yeah. Yeah. it might be mechanized now. The actual that actual um, step one, two, three until about 10 or something hasn't changed very much. Right. Um, it's a very ancient crop, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and farming is also ancient. Anything that you farm, you have to, you know, you know, plow the land and things like this, you know, sow what we see, things like that. The other thing that's important to remember is that then you have textiles production. So in textiles production, you have to get rid of what we call you know it's the same as you make tissue paper and things like that you are working with a natural product but you want the outcome to be a consistent quality so then mm. it's a bit like putting you know fibers into a washing machine adding a little soap a little disinfectant or whatever it comes out as a paper mache and then next minute machines make them into thread or yarn mm. um so there's a lot of chemicals involved and um, that's not necessarily the issue. The issue is um, some countries who operate these sort of factories are mm. not, I suppose, very much in compliance with best practice of how we manage our wastewater, for example, or um, discharges from your you know emissions, uh, you know factory emissions and things like that. So, for example, something that might not be allowed in Australia, We go into India or we go into Bangladesh or we go into certain other places in the global south, they're allowable, (laughs) you know. So the thing with production is that we have technology. It's not like you have to reinvent the wheel. You can um, clean your wastewater products. You can purify the air. You can collect dust. You can have sort of safety um, mechanisms to keep people, you know, healthy and safe in their workplaces. That is not the issue. That The technology is there. Um, mm. It's just a lack of compliance in some of these mm. places. So we don't have to look very far for that. There's also standards for hiring people and keeping people safe and, you know, um, labor laws across the world that actually makes it quite clear What kind of conditions are acceptable? All of these are available. So when I talk about textiles production and sort of the fashion supply chain, I cannot talk about it without telling you about globalization. (laughs) Um, There are many sort of, I guess, uh, thoughts out there about when it started, but I'll probably focus on maybe after peak oil and after industrialization in the 1950s where we have coal power plants and we have mechanized sort of you know cars and things like that um towards the late 70s early 80s we had what we call the internet (laughs) um so the internet changed everything and I don't know if you recall but in the 1990s once globalization started, a lot of these big sort of companies, it started off with electronic companies like, you know, your IBMs and things like that. They started to venture out into different places in the world because legislation actually was relaxed in terms yeah. of um, having your factories based somewhere else. to Like offshoring, you know, right? Correct, things like yeah. that. So mm-hmm. that is probably the start of where fashion changed its game. To what we see now. Mm-hmm. So, you might have seen, you know, all um, stories about Nike and sort of like, you know, um, sweatshops. That's when the term mm-hmm. sweatshops came about in, mm-hmm. in, in Indonesia and places like where they make their, their, their um, shoes and stuff. They've, they've gone a long way since then. Mm-hmm. But I think what people have to realize is that all of these things didn't just happen overnight, you know, um, other things made um, fast fashion, possible, you know, mm, with the realization mm. of tariffs of cotton, for example. You know, America didn't used to want to have cotton imported from overseas because mm. they wanted to protect their own cotton industry, and so they mm. would only supply from their own shores. Yeah. So, if you think about that experience, and then just multiply that with different regions around the world, different regions with what we call free trade agreements, coupled with the internet fashion's supply chain is now a global a global factory supply chain and that is why it is so hard for us to understand where anything has come right. from it's not just fashion it's food you know yes. it's yep. your computers it's your phones and stuff like yep. that mm. to actually summarize it um i would say that understanding where your supplies are is actually a good starting point I can talk about sustainability reporting later on if you want. (laughs) There are sort of issues with that as well. But I think we are confusing reporting with actually having an impact onto Mm. our processes on the planet Mm. and to people Mm. and animals. So Mm. I would always tell businesses, don't get confused with the more you report, the better you are because that's Mm. not the end game. The recording is supposed to be just a tool to actually understand what your footprint is about, and then do something about it, and actually extend your responsibility to areas that you can extend it to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's a whole that's a whole yeah. other conversation. No, no. Basically, mm-hmm. I think what's important to understand is that if people haven't really looked at a point of reference in time for fashion, I think they should, which is obviously Mm. um, the 2013 Rana Plaza collapse. And so the Rana Plaza collapse kind of was an expose into how Mm. opaque the fashion supply chain is. And obviously, since then, that's the birth of fashion revolution in terms of, you know, uh, who made my clothes campaign, that sort of thing. And uh, as you said, transparency is the first step. Uh, people have to understand that subcontracting happens everywhere. It happens in construction, it happens yeah, in food, yeah, yeah. all sorts of different things. Um, but just be wary that even though companies have responsibility, I think individual action is so, so, so powerful. Um, I talk about it in my latest blog post. I say, is there a perfect wardrobe? And the way that I you know, ask people to really consider their choices is to consume differently. And it's really about understanding how do you consume differently in your everyday life. I'm not here to tell you don't wear clothes. We, we need clothes, you know, to provide ourselves warmth and um, to actually maybe uh, explore our identity or, you know, kind of belong to a cultural group, whatever it is, right? Um, I think there is a balance there between um, making something a product that is um, has what I call an inherent um, purpose versus you know making a product that is just there to, to fill out your pockets with greedy money. Uh, and I think it's so a this I'm not against businesses businesses can still make money. I just mm-hmm. don't think you need to make completely a really ridiculous amounts of it <laughs> yeah, that's right that's right mm-hmm. um so for example if H&M wants to start with a collection and things like that they actually already know what they want their product to look like what the design mm-hmm. is going to be like in what mm-hmm. color right mm-hmm. so yeah. they say look I have this particular product I want it in five colors and all these sorts of sizes and what we call SKU um, yeah. and they say who can make it for me at this price they've already priced it they said, who can make yeah. it from $1? Yeah. And then yeah. so these factories, and for example, if I go to Bangladesh, as an example, the ready-made garments industry, uh, you have what you call middlemen, and they're sort of, um, they have a bunch of what you call uh, work planners or work schedulers or factory um, uh, planners. Uh, and and they, they are on the phone to these buyers from mm. h H&M. and and so mm-hmm. they're like, I know someone who can make 50,000 pieces of this at a dollar. And then they're like, um, they have access to them, the factory owners in Bangladesh. Now they have access to these factory owners, but the factory owners are like, no, I can make 50,000 at 80 cents a piece. Mm-hmm. And then another factory owner says, I can make it 50 cents a piece because they want that contract. So this middleman person is on the phone to HM and says, Yep, I can take all 2 million orders or whatever it is, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And that person has a lot of power. Um, and when he says this factory owner here can make it for 80 cents, um, he doesn't know that that factory owner might make it for 80 cents in this period of time. Uh, and that factory owner might subcontract it somewhere else. So mm-hmm. in my language, that's what we... We talk about subcontracting, that's what we talk Mm. about in terms of driving um, prices Mm. down Mm. uh, and also getting the contract. And Mm. these are these factory owners' livelihoods. But you can imagine when it is a price war um, and when you want to make a lot of, when you want to produce cut, make, and trim a lot of clothes for a big client, um, how much undercutting is involved and that normally reflects in the conditions of the workers. Mm, mm.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I think that's. Uh, I've learned so much from you know this short conversation that that we've had. I think um, now that we've sort of like kind of broke out. Uh, we sort of like you know broke down all the little parts of um, the fashion supply chain. I think I want to go back to speaking about Xi'an and how you know real time fashion has unfortunately, you know, become a thing of a current reality. From, you know, my research and what I've been reading about how SHEIN manages their um, supply chain, they use um, a lot of, like, user-generated data from their apps and their, uh, from their application, their mobile application, and also from their website. And also they use, like, Google Trend Finder to sort of, like, predict or forecast demand or create a false illusion of a demand, and then um, go on to sort of produce in smaller batches and in smaller quantities, and then sort of like test on the market, like test the water, and see whether that would, you know, um, become like the next viral um, fashion item. So, and, and then they do it; they do all of this in three days. So, my question really is: How is this possible? When, like you mentioned earlier, um, a piece of clothing actually. Goes through the hands of like over hundreds of people. How, how, I can't imagine like the, it's unimaginable how everything can be compressed into as short as three days. Like, what does that actually mean for us in real life? (laughs) Like, you know, just away from the numbers and away from data. Like, what does that actually look like?
1: Okay. I'm going to get to the answer in a bit, but I have to give you a bit of background. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's important to understand how we've got here. So yeah. when I said before, you know, the traditional method of, you know, making clothes, you have trend fairs and all that. Mm-hmm. I feel like you can probably um, maybe class, classify that with some of the more departmental store brands. Yeah. What we call immigrant yeah. brands that don't, there are not sort of Zara or sort of H&M, you know, or Iniclo, any of that stuff, right? Mm, mm, mm. And, and so... It was a slower process, you know, from actually yeah. going to a sort of fair, you know, where they introduce the new color or the new material or how they finish the product or whatever it is. That probably is two years, right, before that stage to to your house, you know, owning that product. Okay, so yeah. it was lower. Yeah, um, and and obviously there are trend forecasters and things like that, and. And what they do, they bring some of these ideas from, you know, global sort of places, and then they're like, okay, I'm in Australia now. I think Europe is into this. Maybe I can create something from what I've learned over there, and then create something for my season and my collection. Fashion used to have two seasons in a year: spring, summer, autumn, winter. It's not like that anymore. Yeah, no. And I think fashion now already knows that system is antiquated because from that stage, when I say 100 steps you have things like sampling and you have things like, um, you know, um, where you create waste on the shop floor and you have to kind of test out some of your things uh, with maybe a a slower method. And again, I think technology has accelerated um, these sort of steps. So you might condense it. You might take Mm. away 20 steps, for example, from, uh, for example, some of the more technical stuff is important to acknowledge so mm. I want to have silk pants with this design you right. might see that um you might see a couple of trends and you might want to mix the two but then you mm. go to your supplier who makes samples for you and they might be mm. offshore right and mm. they're like I can't print this color on this material mm. so but. So some of the more technical textile stuff happen. Um, you have a bit of a to and fro. You know, you have to test this. And is it going to work? Is this print gonna work? Is this color? Is this embroidery gonna work? Is this bead gonna work? Whatever it is, right? So that process used to take a lot of to and fro. Uh, and then you know, the stretch and stuff like that. Mm. So and then once and then there are people in the, in, in, in the supply chain whose job is to actually make these things happen. And they're like, hey, Haitian, H&M, I've got this material. It's new now, it's stretchable. You could probably make jumpers out of this or whatever. Um, and so there was a lot of things happening. So fast forward to you know the 21st century in the last decade or two. Obviously, Zara has um, gone a little bit, they're, they're an innovative company. They've decided I'm going to cut short the time of having sort of. I want to go against what fashion, you know, made themselves famous for. All of this, a hundred steps before me, is too time wasteful, and I understand where they're coming yeah. from So they're like, I want to offer customers uh, something that they like in a shorter amount of time, in different mm-hmm. colors, different sizes. Mm-hmm. And so, what they've done is they've revolutionized the design process. Um, so, for example, instead of o- over-ordering, like, so many things in blue, they say I want it in white. And they've maybe um, decided to um, use the process upside down, you know, mm. or back to front. So they're like, I want, I want you to save this many yardage of this fabric, um, but have it white. And then when I have the user-generated content in terms of, they started that trend first, right? They, they started all that first. They use technology mm-hmm. to figure out what it is that the customers want, buy, what customers buy in their stores and things like that, that grow all together. And they're like, I think the next season color should be this. Then they go back to the supplier and then they dye it a different color because mm-hmm. then they stop sort of that sort of wastage mm-hmm. um, instead of buying everything in this color and then doesn't sell, you know? Because, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. When I said to you, the trend, you know, the going to the fairs was two years ago. That changes. Like someone decides that that's going to be the next big thing. And then two years later, you order that and then no one buys it. And this is why fashion has such a big overproduction and big wastage problem. So fast forward to now, you, I don't know how you say Is it Shein or is it Shane? I'm not sure. <laughs> Shein has only been in my radar recently. I do yeah. not know where they've come from. I seriously, right? I, I don't even know. Um, so ultra fast fashion, um, when you say these do user generated content and things like that, they're actually using the very technology that uh, we, people like myself mm-hmm. and people who are innovators in this space have been telling the fashion industry to do actually right. um right. when we say things like data driven demand yeah um, reconciling your supply chain at the front right. and also the back and actually making things based on what people would like or would sell yeah they're actually utilizing all of that so they've used ai they've used virtual reality yeah. they probably yeah. have smaller batches as you said before um And that is not actually implausible. And what I say to people nowadays is that fast fashion doesn't necessarily need to be bad. What is bad, I actually now like to use the term disposable fashion. Mm. So you can actually make good clothes fast nowadays. You can make good clothes fast. We don't need to go back to the time where we have two fashion seasons in a year and people have to go to the fashion fair, right? <laughs> um, yeah. We, who creates these trends anyway? So that was this, That was the history right. of how it all started. And so it's it's evolved into now may, may, becoming, like having things that, that are nice and cool to wear mm. available to people and accessible to people at mm. super speed. Um, mm. and, and record time, which is what we've been telling fashion companies to do. What Sheen has done, though, is obviously we don't know how exactly they do it, and that's why we're a little bit worried, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So when you say, how can you condense all these steps and make things quick? It's something that I've told the, the supply chain and fashion companies to have to do. Like use users generated data. Obviously, don't infringe on anyone's design, (laughs) please. Which they've been, you know, which she
0: and his, yeah, yeah,
1: multiple times, yeah, that's right. Um, Mm -hmm. But all of this technology is 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 in our hands now, right? Uh, And we have um, a lot of things that can enable us to reduce waste, to only um, uh, produce on demand or produce limited quantities or um, have on time when you say real time um, supply right mm. so these are not necessarily bad things in my opinion it's just that sheen their supply chain is very opaque so yeah if they want that's right if mm. they wanted to celebrate the fact that there are pioneers and innovators in this mm. space mm. then they should just shout from this you know top of the hills about it and say we're very proud of our um innovation and we've used proprietary technology or whatever it is, uh, but then also tell a story about how everything got there. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs>
0: mm, yeah I, I think um I think then it, it goes back into like the intention of, of doing it, right? Like the intention is obviously yeah. not to be like, hey, we found this new of like way you can use the technology and also you can use ai to sort of like predict um demand or sort of um uh allow yourself access to all these you know user-generated data and then produce accordingly and make accordingly they're not about being like oh you know like um, this is open source like uh information they are just i think in my opinion like a like a data-driven tech company using um clothing as as as, as product making and then yeah. profiting through it yeah i, I don't yeah. think um she and as a fashion company i think they are a tech company yeah so maybe that is
1: what's I, wrong <laughs> that is what's up <laughs> I absolutely agree. So one of the things I tell my clients who want to start or even, you know, if I have mentors wanting to enter this space, it, it doesn't matter what produce you make, you know, or mm. products, sorry. It's very important to understand why you exist. What is your why? What is your purpose? Mm. And don't confuse it with your how. So Sheen's how or Sheen's how could be that it is clothes but their why is probably collecting data, right? Mm. And they're selling all that data Mm. and they're making a lot of tons and tons and tons of money out of Mm. that information uh, to all of their stakeholders. I don't know who Mm. they are, right? So Mm. I agree with you 100%. um, Don't get confused that they're a fashion company. They're actually a very savvy company that uses Technology, um, uh, internet of everything, to actually propel their product forward. Now, if you think about things that way, then you realize, am I a sheep? You know. So then, if you're buying from Sheen, then you realize, oh crap! I think I might have gotten, you know, I'm going in for a joyride here, and mm. um, I think I've been taking advantage of. And I think that's mm. the language that we need to be having mm. about these mm. things. I still think it is
0: almost like a like a like insight to the fact that the fashion industry is still or at least the mainstream fashion industry like big fashion is still solely profit seeking it's yeah there's no other way to put it I think in, in your opinion like how does that I, I I guess my question is how does that make you feel <laughs> and like yeah. what does that yeah. what does that mean for for all of us as, as clothing wearers and, and as users, like you mentioned earlier, right? Like what does that, what does that yeah. mean? Yeah, it's it's also, I think, <laughs> going back to yeah, you mentioning that, you know, we have to be conscientious when it comes to to consuming fashion and participating in the system in in, in fashion. And I think I also wanted to um, add on my take, which is that maybe what we need is also compassion Um, maybe conscientiousness comes before compassion. Like you sort of have the understanding and and you don't need to have full, complete comprehension of everything, but like you need to kick in, like have the empathy kick in and be like, yeah, like my wardrobe is human and, you know, there is um, all these human aspects that that are attached to um, what I wear. So yeah, like how do you feel about all of this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's very thought-provoking. Thank you for that question. Um, I, I agree with you. Compassion is important, and if you hop back to the days of your grandma, right? For example, I my grandma's bless her soul that like she's still around in Malaysia. She's going to be eighty-eight next year. Wow. Um, yes, so I tell uh, tidbits of her little stories in my presentations to clients. So I often tell people. Um, anything that you consume has to have has to have a value that is significant to you that is how you find mm. meaning in how you consume whether it be clothes or shoes or your furniture right mm. so fashion the reason why fashion is very much profit based at the moment as you mm. rightly called it so is because it's not been regulated as an industry. So, one of the things that I see should happen in the future, pretty much medium term future, is regulation. Mm-hmm. So, when you talk about sustainable fashion or sustainability in fashion or all these things, I have to go back to the fact that I'm an environmental engineer and I've worked in different industries. And fashion has been slow in its uptake of sustainability principles because, singularly, of regulation lack of regulation so you might have to set standards for example making computers you have to set standards making cars you have to set standards making chemicals there's regulation like explosives and mining construction like making houses like you have to have minimum standards of construction am i correct yeah is there a minimum standard for making clothes no No, Mm. there isn't. So there's Mm. no minimum standard to say you need to not have hazardous chemicals in your clothes. You must uh, pay someone a minimum wage or a living wage, whatever it is, right? They have to be standards, like Mm. to make something. Mm. And it is something that is, to me, top of mind um, in terms of how we tackle fashion in the future. Um, It is actually something that is quite... Um, easy to tackle you can do that now governments can actually do that Uh, and that's why fashion's been lagging the other thing Mm. that fashion hasn't done is research and development so Mm. all of their all of their what you call wealth that's been generated in the last couple of decades especially from the fast fashion businesses hasn't really gone into R&D I talk about it a mm. lot in terms of the fashion supply chain and why we've gotten to where we are, why are we so slow at the uptake? I mean, come on, you got to you gotta have proper treatment systems uh, for pollution, for stacks, for dust collection in all sorts of different factories out in Asia or in Africa or in sort of any of the Global South company, uh, sort of mm. geography, you know, um, nations. Mm. Um, this is all like... This is all like a given. The technology is already there. It's not like mm. we don't have environment protection authorities in these countries. Um, these mm. things are already there. It's just a matter of, you know, having it being a normal situation in these sorts of industries, but it's not normal for fashion. Yeah. It's normal yeah. for construction. It's normal for mining. Yeah. It's normal for um, agriculture. Yeah. Fashion, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... The R&D equation is important. You know, if you look at how much profit or net sales that come into tech companies or construction companies or automated companies or even chemical companies, um, the amount of money they make, they actually, like, go into uh, a stream mm. where they improve their industry, right? Fashion mm. hasn't done that. Fashion, on mm. average, has only contributed 0.1% of all of their net sales into R&D. And this is why we still don't have technology to recycle our clothes at the end of yeah. its life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I can talk about this forever, and it's something that mm. really boils <laughs> my blood. Um, I mean, yeah. that number's probably gone up a little bit now, but it is still minuscule. Yeah. And no, so this yeah. is why fashion is so slow in its uptake mm. of Um, just being clean, being transparent, just literally being on top of things, to be honest. You know, why are we even having Mm. this conversation right now? Honestly. Um, In terms of the future of fashion, I always say to people, we always need to consume based on what our values are. So, and also have businesses based on those values. If you want to create a business, it needs to be based on those values. But what kind of of a better place are you trying to create for the world and the inhabitants in it, you know? Um, (laughs) uh, Are you trying to enrich people's lives? Are you trying to, you know, increase biodiversity? Are you trying to regenerate soil? It has to come from that instead of coming from a different place. So Mm. you are correct to say that maybe fashion is very much on the outset a very shallow or you know profit seeking business uh because it is based at the moment on aesthetics instead of function um but the way fashion needs to be now is we need to to marry the two you can still mm-hmm. have a function and aesthetics mm-hmm. um and you can still make things that are valuable to people and i always tell people to support um you know, local heritage uh, and sort of celebrate them. Going back to my grandma's stories, if I tell anyone to buy anything new, I'm just saying like, if you need to buy anything new, I'm not going to stop you. But if you do, make sure that it passes the grandma test. And what I mean by this is that I see clothes in my grandma's wardrobe that is from the 1920s or the 1930s and I touch it and I, I can feel what she felt when she touched it. You know, it's, it's very sentimental. Mm. And even now, I think about it, I'm quite teary because, you know, those things have gone through such mm. um, such a different world than us, you know, they've made it with love. Uh, you see the lace in her clothes and and you want to feel that in anything that you conceive now, anything that you mm. buy. Um, there's a lot of thought that has gone into it, and exactly as you said, yeah, compassion.
0: Thank you so much for being so generous with your your time and you know your knowledge and your heart. If I may, like you know what you what you talked about earlier, like um, the fact that you know fashion has just lagged behind so much in terms of being um, almost legitimized as a as. Uh, awkwardly as both an industry and as a art form almost it's a form of art I couldn't help but think like the way I sort of processed what you were saying like comparing fashion with like the automobiles industry with um, agriculture with um, construction with these very man-led they are very sort of like um work that's not women's work fashion has historically been so linked and so attached to the identity of women of of homemakers who are women so this is just me I might be just you know opening a completely different can of worms here but um just wanted to know what you think about this now, if
1: you want to single lot, sort of women's work I mean obviously yes we have to acknowledge that um you know a lot of fashion is still not mechanized. You still have to use a lot of hands and, you know, Mm. you know, threading and needle and beading and stuff like that. But It's actually not necessarily, that is not necessarily the reason why fashion is not regulated. No, not at Mm. all. If you wanna look back at history, you know, a lot of artisans in Italy making beadwork and stuff, they're all men. You're right. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Leather leather artisans are men. Um, uh, Beadwork artisans are also men in certain countries. So you have to explore uh, some of these uh, questions. Maybe when we think about that, we think of maybe our region, Asia. Uh, and Mm. Asia is very much sort of women-heavy in terms of a lot of the housework and things like that, Mm. but that's a cultural Mm. thing, you know. It just so happened, it's, um, and I don't want to go into that, that's another conversation, but, you know, but that's why maybe that's what we imagine because we're we're both Asian. But if Mm. you look at different sort of countries in terms of Brazil or in terms of Italy, um, yes, yes, women do some of these work, but it's just, it's a different cultural yeah
0: fair, fair, yeah yeah um, I think what what made me think of bringing this up is also because like you know every time we speak about clothing and like you know stories of wear we're always mentioning about um it's always women's voices that we are amplifying and that we're we're referencing and that we're sort of like being inspired by like you know speaking about our grandmother's clothing and you know her practices of wear it's always it's so it's so female centric it's women centric
1: and you have to to maybe go back to the history a little bit and you know there's that's another conversation yeah and it's very yeah. fascinating how we have now contributed that industry to women but I agree that um it is a very easy um relationship to make um I think we had to celebrate women's um efforts you know in that time so you know Dior came up with um you know it was a Pioneer at that stage, big sort of skirts, which we we called it the new look after the war in the nineteen fifties, and everyone wanted to look a certain way, and everyone wanted to celebrate, um, you know, looking very much more formal because we've all been toiling away, you know, with dust and mud and like making back breaking stuff, um, because you know that's 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 the history of it, and so. You know, when Dior came out with a new look, that really paved the way for women to kind of really um, be remembered for something other than just people in the background in the war Mm. efforts. So obviously, that's a very westernized um, narrative Mm. of the history. Uh, There are more narratives that we need to have in this conversation Mm. to have a full balanced view But, Mm. you know, that is something that I'd like to kind of bring up to just remind Mm. people of where that's come from. And Mm. I think women, you know, want to look good. um, And I think they do that through their clothes. And I Mm. think being able to own something that looks great. And obviously back in the day, things were made and and very slowly and, you know, fit, fit it to your body and things like that. We, we're miles different than mm. that now. Mm. But I think it was it was a way for us to celebrate, you know, mm. our power. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. clothes are very powerful. Mm. Uh, and I think that was a way to do that. You know, men celebrate their power a different way. <laughs> you know, they might be able to afford a packet of cigarettes or, um, mm. I don't know, afford a car. And that's a very manly thing to do. Obviously mm. there are stereotypes in gender norms in this sort of conversation, but that is the history we're talking about, mm. how mm. it all mm. happened. Mm. And it is very easy to relate fashion with yeah. women. And mm. that's probably why. Mm. And when I talk about moderns, this is modern history anyway, in the yes. last yeah. hundred years yeah. You know? yeah. So it's important to understand the context. And I think moving forward, um, you are absolutely correct um we have to take back that power to be honest because a lot of the designers and a lot of the what we call cutting people the people who don't do necessarily such backbreaking or dirty work are men so men actually own factories in the global mm. south most of the time and the reason why they do is that they it's because they're just they're just better salesmen, you know, like in that situation anyway. And so they take advantage of people who are less skilled than them. And it just so happens to be women. Um, but I think nowadays with the advent of technology and AI and automation and you know 3D printing is now making homes in less than three hours you know I don't know if you know we can make homes on the spot now we don't have to concrete them pile them into a hole make them into a mold and truck them to site we can make homes 3D now in three days and so fashion can absolutely change and women are the ones who are actually understanding what our needs are functionally uh, and mm. also aesthetically. So I think there's absolute possibility, mm. um, you know, for women to, yeah. you know, reverse, you know, what what mm. you might call a traditional mm. uh, role for them in fashion. Yeah, it's-
0: for sure. For sure. I think also like this conversation just needs to, like we need to hold space for a lot of new ones when we speak about, like when we have this conversation, right? Because it's just so like, I mean, fashion is really at the intersection of a lot of other issues that um, have to be talked about. And also, like you were mentioning that, you know, clothing is powerful and clothing can be, it can take after different forms. It can be celebration, forms of celebration. It can be also used for like self reclamation. And especially right now, it's a party. (laughs) Um, And also just like being able to feel empowered and liberated by our clothing i think that's also incredibly powerful and today i'll hold space and be thankful for that you know that clothes can do that for us and for you sure. can still
1: um feel great in the clothes that you wear as long as for you sure. are compassionate and you're conscientious about where those clothes are coming from mm-hmm. if anything um in this day and age, for example, I mean, if you look at H&M's and Zara's sort of um, shareholders report in terms of their revenue streams, they've actually been uh, profiteering less and less every quarter because, you know, of other things that have happened. Obviously, um, consumers are a little bit more woke. I hate to use that word, but a little bit more <laughs> sort of aware of some of the shady things that are happening. And they're also maybe looking back at their own individual style and um, mm. reap and, and pausing. You know, I think COVID, the pandemic has actually made things a little bit better that way to ask us from within what it is actually that we want and what it is that we're aligning ourselves with, what is important to us. And mm. even though like maybe the first, me the first, maybe few months last year when it was at the height of the pandemic, People were probably buying a lot online and things like that. I think some of those things have died down now because, you know, people were like, well, it was just to make them feel better for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the future, I see companies who don't engage, who don't change their business practices, who don't sort of operate responsibly uh, with compassion, uh, with, you know, ethics in mind. They are going to drop off. They're not going to survive. So, yeah. so nowadays, I mean, the world is, uh, even though it's yeah. a competitive place, it's also a very, it's a very hard space to operate in. Any businesses yeah. want to leave a legacy for future generations have to start with the right purpose and the right way, yeah. and yeah. and that is how you actually you yeah. build yeah. the that's right. I I
0: day. I agree. Yeah, and I think companies, fashion companies, brands, and you know, they really need to reflect the current state of the world and if they don't like you said yeah they will be eliminated yeah
1: absolutely yeah mm. they'll get left behind so yeah I they'll get left behind the world will correct itself. i'm very very sure of that self-cleansing <laughs> yeah ever really cleanse am. and detox yeah they have been on this ride for a couple of decades now and i think anyone that wants to start a new business now um you know, even if they make a short-term profit, even Shane, you know, I don't know what yeah. they're gonna pick into, what kind of yeah. products they're gonna sell after this. They yeah. might re-emerge as another name selling something else. Yeah. But at yeah. the end of the day, their data company, as I said before. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's all short-term sort of gains. And mm. if you want mm. to have a business that has a legacy, a long-lasting mm. legacy, then mm. you know, think about the product you're selling and how you're going to sustain mm. that before we wrap up
0: because we didn't like cover what you were wearing like what you're wearing right now yeah can you
1: just like as a as a wrap up like just tell us what you're wearing and where you are at the moment I am actually currently wearing um a pink knit sort of jumper it's made out of cotton uh it looks like one of those like you know like one of those um, Tommy Hilfiger slash Ralph Lauren yeah. sort of uh, preppy sort of jumper, the preppy look. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, a me down from my sister, uh, and I've had this for the last couple of years. Uh, well, the last year and a half, anyway, since I came to Melbourne, and um, I'm wearing a secondhand pair of Hudson jeans, uh, which I got at uh, Savers, which is a shop here that sells secondhand clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, so all secondhand clothes here. Um, I haven't shopped new for a long, long time. <laughs>
0: mm.
1: I think yeah. people have to really look inside themselves. If they haven't already You read my latest blog post, it's called, is there perfect wardrobe? And we talk mm-hmm. about, you know, um, consuming differently coming from the right place, um, yeah. and coming from, having a look at your traumas and having a look at your identity and having a look at why you do such things and if you can incorporate certain sort of values into Mm. your life at the moment in terms of your your Um, humorism then that's a good place to start Hmm.
0: it's really valuable I will be linking all of the blog posts that you've mentioned throughout the episode in the show notes so everyone (laughs) please go read them I know (laughs) I'll be reading them after this so that was such an incredibly um, informative and, and insightful conversation with Naja and I really am so appreciative of her time. And um, I'm just going to wrap up this episode by saying that, you know, I had so many questions coming into this um, recording and some of them have been answered, some of them are not. And In fact, I have more questions and I think that's because we cannot speak for everything in um, one and a half hours and that's just impossible because this conversation is incredibly nuanced and we need to recognize that and hold space um, for that. Real-time fashion companies, specifically companies like Shein, they are after-profit investment capital and market share. They do not care for ethics. They do not care for consumer well-being or even, you know, having a Um, healthy and responsible brand image, I'll go as far as to say that, you know, as long as um, people on TikTok continue to buy from them and as long as they can continue to afford um, exorbitant celebrity endorsements. In the same Green is the New Black article that I mentioned earlier, writer Tammy Gunn mentions that whether or not this desire to buy more is natural, Uh, it certainly is manufactured and enhanced by our modern culture, institutions and systems. Again, Shein isn't a fashion company. It is a tech and big data company commodifying clothing for profit. Under fast and real-time fashion supply chain, clothing just becomes products for sale. We would like to thank our friends over at PodcastMate who produced this podcast. Production Manager, Cher Abora. Creative and marketing lead Michael Alonzo, Video producer Ian Velasquez. Sound design and podcast producer Lamwell Morata. Executive director Nash Maiwella. Rewears created by The Fashion Pulpit, a production in partnership with Podcast Meet. Hosted by Singun Shin.